Okay. So we are live. And I'm seeing thumbs up. What does that mean? Oh, it's Trisha. Can you see how many people are joining? Oh, I don't see that. Give it just one more second. Let me check. I'm looking at my land manager. Am I on? Oh, hold on. How do I turn it off now? Okay. All right. Ah, see, look, <laughs> Trisha can see us now. Okay, cool. So we're going to go ahead and kick this off. Are you ready? I'm ready. Okay. Well, there are a lot of people watching, so don't mess up, okay? Well, this is my first <laughs> podcast. Why not do it live stream in the awesome, most historic awesome. week in oil history? <laughs> it's a good time to start. Well, good morning, everyone. Thank you so much for joining. I'm Catherine Mills, and you are listening to the Crude Audacity podcast, the podcast that talks shop shit and all things strategy with oil patch influencers. Today, I'm joined by my good friend, Miss Whitney Witts out of Sheridan, Wyoming. For those of you who might not know, Whitney is an entrepreneurial powerhouse in the oil field. She has been Forbes Top 30 Under 30 twice, and... She is now currently the COO and co-founder of Rocking WW Minerals, again, up in Sheridan, Wyoming, which you moved up there about six months ago, yeah? Yes, we relocated from Denver in June. Um, you know, we've been focused on Rocky's assets for a long time, and specifically Wyoming. We love the state. And so we decided to pick up and, and move here and, and staff up here. Um, it's awesome. It's a... Uh, I love it here. I actually have a pretty funny story, Wyoming story that happened to me last night. A Wyoming super, story? Yeah. So okay. super different from living in Denver. Here's a good example. So I live in Bighorn, which is an unincorporated community just right outside of Sheridan. The middle of nowhere. Well, yeah. And I love it that way. So I got neighbors, but they're far away. You know, we all have five to 10 acres, whatever. And at about 11 o'clock last night, my dogs start barking, which is unusual. And so I opened the door and my neighbor's horses had gotten loose and they're in my yard. And I don't mind, but I'm worried that they might wander along the busy road at some point. And so yeah. trying to figure out how to contact my neighbors, I finally drive over there and uh, they start walking back. They don't have any halters. There's two horses and one donkey. And so I put... I wrapped my dog leash around this donkey's neck and I'm trying to drag this ass named Molly back to her house at 11 o'clock at night. And she does not want to go because my grass looks a lot better than hers. So it takes about 20 minutes to pull Molly back to her house. Um, but uh, yeah, that's a typical night there in Wyoming. So you were dragging ass last night. Yeah, I was. That's why I'm tired today. Well, awesome. Well, thank you so much for joining. I'm so excited to get your perspective because as you know, we hit rock bottom and drilled straight through it on Monday. And given your background in the energy space, it's been an industry that you have loved, hated. It's kicked you in your teeth. You've come back guns a-blazing. So just to kick us off, you know, no one should be surprised about what happened on Monday. It's been touted for a long time that it is time to shut in. We need to be prepared for being under $10 a barrel. What was interesting was the fact that we hit zero and then drilled straight down to negative 40. So from your perspective, what was the perfect storm that caused this? Was it, I mean, what, what was happening in the market in the weekend before and the weeks before that led up to it? Can you give us your, your, you and your partner's insight? Yeah, sure. So, you know, there's the obvious background, which is COVID and the ego, ego wars going on, you know, at OPEC, but our industry was in trouble before this, you know, just exacerbated it. Uh, you know, in trouble for the, a while. 
Yeah, yeah. So at the at the end of 2014, you know, we're in ICU and we went through that downturn and we came out of, you know, ICU and the downturn, but we stayed in the hospital. Um, yeah. You know, a lot of the companies that came out relevered themselves. You know, in fact, about uh, the companies that survived the last downturn, their debt makes up about 10% of the junk bonds right now. So, you know, we didn't really fix our problems. Um, we were investing in bad rock that weren't really economic, you know, at, at even, you know, $50, $60 oil. Um, you know, so things weren't looking so pretty anyway. I think everyone was kind of bracing for another pseudo downturn. Then along comes COVID, you know, which is by far the biggest catalyst in this whole, whole mess. And OPEC, you know, just added insult to injury, you know, those brief ego war, you know, between Saudi Arabia and Russia. Um, and then, you know, agreeing to that $10 million cut was a little, you know, was too little too late. Yeah, so exactly. What we saw with these negative prices happen, and, you know, it's easy to say that we didn't see that coming, but obviously the traders did because CME actually changed their systems at the beginning of the month to be able to, to take negative pricing. And negative commodity pricing on the futures market isn't unheard of. You know, natural gas prices have been traded negative. Um, you know, gasoline has been traded negative. Anything that typically runs into a storage shortage mm -hmm. will eventually trade negative. And so what we saw happen on, on Tuesday is, you know, the May contract coming up, um, you know, on close. A lot of people, so it's kind of counterintuitive because you see, okay, negative prices. That looks like it must have been some sort of, you know, bearish reaction. Um, you know, to the market, but it was actually created by a bullish reaction where you had a bunch of investors, individual investors jumping into the ETFs that didn't really understand them, betting that they were getting in at bottom, betting in that the contracts were going to close higher than they were. Um, but lo and behold, we run into storage issues, uh, you know, where the people, the traders left with a contract, you know, that maybe typically could find storage, can find storage, and then a lot of folks, you know, didn't even realize, you know, that they had to assume delivery of the crude, you know, if they were kept the contract, didn't know what to do, ensued, you know, panic, and uh, they had to pay people to take oil off their hands. So what do negative oil prices actually mean? Because like you said, this is not new in the future space. So what are the impacts of industry for the negative? Yeah, I mean, so the you know the intrinsic value of oil isn't really zero you know oil is never worthless you know it can only go negative because because of you know financial market mechanics and so you know the, the storage companies um you know they're going to make hundreds of millions of dollars you know in this and so you ask them if they think you know oil is worthless and you know their financials in a couple months are going to tell you otherwise so someone's always going to get rich on one end of the spectrum. Exactly. There's somebody on every side of a bet. Well, talk to us about the rumors that, you know, we went ne negative here this week in April, but May and June are expected to be just as bad, if not worse, because of the storage issue. So what are you guys bracing yeah. for? You know, so Cushing is about 80% full right now, and the remaining 20% capacity has been leased. So we're expecting a probably fill all that storage by the end of the month. So we will run into the same issue when it comes to June future contracts that are, you know, expiring at, at the end of uh, May. And hopefully, you know, the, the traders have, have learned a bit from uh, Tuesday. You know, I think a lot of people lost a lot of money and got pretty burned, um, you know. Yeah. But, you know, in any volatile market, there's always people willing to take bets. So I'm sure there are people that are going to be going long. Mm -hmm. um, but, you know, hopefully, you know, this, this storage problem, you know, is, is becoming a, a reality to a lot of these traders. Um, and, and they'll be a little bit more bearish than they were the last go around. Hopefully, <clears throat> once you get further out and you start looking at July, August, September contracts, you know, probably hopefully won't see it go negative, you know, as the economy begins to recover and we start drawing down on storage a bit, you know, that should hopefully alleviate the risk of, of it trading negative again. So, I mean, are we going to go negative again, even this month? 
Yeah, I mean, it very well could. You know, again, we, we have nowhere to put it. You know, and so inevitably, you know, if there's people long in the market, you know, I don't, you know, I don't know, I don't know where that's going to go. Well, you're seeing in the news this, this like, I guess the hope that this OPEC plus negotiation is going to work out and it's going to be the small saving grace for the oil field. But what I'm seeing is we, we've got impacts from Mexico, Russia, OPEC saying we're cutting back, but what is the United States cutting back? Because that's where we got ourselves in this mess to begin with. I mean, in order to handle this reduction in demand, there has to be something that pulls back the oversupply. Yeah, you know, I, I think the U.S. has been its own worst enemy, you know, when it comes to production. And we've always kind of seen OPEC as a kind of lifeguard that they're going to, you know, they're going to save us, you know, and, and cut, you know, cut production and, and help bring back up prices. Obviously, in COVID, this is a whole different scenario. I don't really think, you know, any additional cuts OPEC's going to do is not going to make oil rebound. You know, it may, you know, obviously it'll help and it, it'll decrease, you know, production quicker. And we may draw on those, you know, you know, those storage, those stockpiles sooner, but it's really not going to have a profound impact. I mean, this week we saw just in the U.S. 50 million barrels added. Um, I think we're up to like 519 million barrels of storage. Mm -hmm. It's going to take a long time to draw this down. Now, you know, going back to what is the U.S. doing? So the U.S. is obviously unique from the rest of the OPEC countries because, you know, we're a free market. You know, we we are a capitalistic free market, whereas obviously, you know, the OPEC countries, their energy industries are controlled by, by the government. Um, you know, but the U.S. should organically cut production by necessity. You know, we can't make money at these prices. I don't think any operators want to be producing at these prices unless they're really well hedged. But, you know, if they're not well hedged, it's it's in no one's best interest to keep producing. And so, you know, like what the Texas Railroad Commission is doing, you know, trying to kind of be a, a smaller version of OPEC in, in Texas and, and, you know, get the companies to cut production. I don't really think that's the answer. You know, I think the better answer is what we saw OCC doing and saying, okay, you know, producing in this uneconomic environment, that production can be categorized as economic waste, which now allows operators to shut in production without, you know, fears of, um, you know, losing leases. So now their remaining fears are, you know, if they've got minimum volume commitments, you know, and can't get out of those, you know, if they've got certain, you know, they've got debt payments they're making that they have to have cash flow for, you know, GNA, you know, if they've got high fixed expenses, you know, that, that they have to continue to produce for. Other than that, you know, I don't know why anybody would want to be producing right now. And I think everybody would like to shut in unless they're really well hedged and they can, you know, essentially capitalize on this down market. And, you know, if they're hedged at, let's say, 50 or 60 bar or dollars a barrel, Right now, you know, they're making that and they still get to pay out uh, royalties at, at spot price. So yeah. the markets are huge right now. So your opinion is that these proposed cuts, these potential cuts that we'll see in May from the OPEC and OPEC plus are not going to have the desired impact, or at least for a while, because of this approximately, what, 38% reduction in demand? You don't see the, the upside of this uh, this new development, this new piece of the puzzle? I mean, of course, you know, there's there's a little upside, just like there was when they cut the 10 million barrels a day. It's definitely going to help, you know, the industry recover sooner. But again, it's not going to have a quick impact. You know, it's not going to bring us out of where we are. You know, we've got too much storage that we've got to draw down before we really see the impacts of these production cuts. Mm -hmm. Do you think demand is ever going to hit back where it was? I would say it's going to take quite a while to see that hundred hundred million or hundred thousand barrel a day uh, daily use of uh, petroleum. So, what what are your thoughts there? How is demand going to react to this current uh, COVID situation? Yeah, I mean, I'm sure demand at some point will go back up to a hundred million barrels a day. I think that the EIA, obviously, their report came out before this whole 
COVID crisis, you know, but they're anticipating from 2018, which was about 100 million barrels a day, you know, to 2050, that demand was going to increase to be about 127. Now, obviously, you know, the the growth isn't coming from, you know, OECD countries. It's not coming from the United States. It's not coming from Europe. It's not coming from the first world, world countries. The growth is coming from the Chinas and the Indias of the world, you know, in the non-OECD countries, specifically in Asia. And so that those are the markets we're really going to rely on, you know, to bring demand back up. Interesting. So for what does this mean for buying, selling assets? We've got companies on the verge of bankruptcy. Assets are worth everything still. Company, it's easier to buy the company at this point. I mean, it's but this is a different situation. It's not two guys in a cell phone deciding they're going to scoop up some cheap assets. And my argument is that the money, or at least private money, has been waiting for a downfall like this for about five years now. So what do you see changing in that space? You know, so private equity, you know, really jumped on board, you know, the upstream industry in 2014, you know, really believing in this shale revolution. And so that's really when they jumped in this game. And then, you know, in the last downturn, kind of to what you're saying, you know, you had this money waiting there. So in 2017, there were 32 funds raised. In 2018, there were 20 funds raised. In 2019, there were 12 funds raised. And this time this year, there's only two funds raised. And that's because the private equity model is effectively broken. You know, what they were doing and getting away with was this philo, prove up and flip concept, which worked well for a couple of years. And especially in places like the Permian and the Scoop Stack. It's kind um, of funny. Yeah, but a lot of that money that was invested was invested in bad rock. So yeah. all those investments actually turned out uneconomic. And so when they weren't able to sell to the bigger fish and, you know, the public stopped, stopped, you know, buying these different positions from the private equity firms, suddenly what was supposed to be a three to five year private equity cycle turns into a, you know, a, a produce out strategy. Yeah. But unfortunately, the produce out strategy doesn't work in uneconomic rock. And so I don't think I think. I think you're not going to see as much private equity investment um, as you would expect. And that's just because, you know, they're, you know, they've been hanging on by a thread again, even before COVID and even, you know, before these, these OPEC wars, you know, the private equity companies have been dying on the vine. And so you've, you've got some funds still again, the few funds that have been able to raise money, you know, have management teams that they've either backed or they're ready to back. But I think, you know, they're pretty risk adverse at this point and they're going to be really patient. You know, I know from our perspective and our sponsor, you know, we're kind of one of those companies that's going to look for investments in this downturn. But we're going to remain really patient and really objective. You know, it's easy if you want to deal that bad, you can make any deal look good, you know, but you really have to be disciplined and, and look at it, you know, black and white and look at the draconian situation or scenario and say, if oil were to stay at 35 for the next couple of years, you're just looking at strip. If I run this asset at strip, you know, can I make money on it? Mm -hmm. And uh, that's a tough question to answer right now. Well, how is the face of private equity going to change? Because for many of us, that's what we're used to. That's the economic model. And, you know, we weren't seeing the private investors like we had, or at least to the extent that we had uh, prior to the shell uh, boom. So what do you think is changing there? Yeah, again, I, I think uh, investors are, are afraid of, of oil. I think it's really hard to raise money in upstream um, for these funds. And, you know, it's this it's going to have for companies to invest right now. It's going to have to work on a produce out strategy. You know, they, they can't buy companies with a three to five year exit in mind anymore. Mm -hmm. What's changing in the mineral space for you guys? Yeah, so the middle space is going to be a really interesting one in this downturn. Um, you know, it's pretty new. It really exploded in the last downturn, and people got really excited about minerals and kind of shot off into its own segment. So between 2014 or 2015, 2018, you had like $15 billion of private equity poured into these mineral companies. You know, you've got six public mineral companies right now. Um, 
three of which IPO'd in 2017, one Brigham IPO'd in 2019. So aside, you know, from Blackstone and Dorchester Minerals, we haven't really been through a downturn where you've had a lot of, you know, big mineral companies. So I think there's a lot of questions there. They haven't really been talked about much. And I think it's because, you know, we, we don't really know, you know, how well those companies are going to weather the storm. Obviously, they don't have, uh, you know, they have a lot less cost than the AMPs. You know, they're not drilling wells. They don't have you know, a ton of overhead. But the other thing is they're not in control of their development. Correct. If you look at a Blackstone, Blackstone, 30% of their portfolio is producing. 70% is not. And so you look at what's going to happen over the next couple of years, and assuming not a lot of development happens, how are they going to replace those cash flows? You know? And so, you know, they're not, they're not in control of the development timing. And as the rigs are laid down, you know, they, they don't have any way to replace that declining production. And so that will kind of be interesting to see, you know, what happens to these mineral companies. Now, hopefully what they've done is invested in really good rock under really good operators that are going to be the first, you know, areas kind of return to as, as the rig starts to pick up. And then, you know, the other big question mark is that private equity side of minerals. Yeah. You know, what's going to happen? Because again, unlike, you know, your, your, you know, private equity backed EMPs, they have low cost, low overhead. And so why would a private equity company, you know, want to sell their, their mineral portfolio right now when they know that in a couple of years, it's going to be much worse than selling it today. And I think you're going to see probably a lot of consolidation there um, yeah. under you know, private equity funds. You're going to see them start to consolidate companies, you know, with, you're already seeing it for one reason or another. Yeah. I mean, it's a, you know, it can be run by a small group of people on autopilot if need be, you know, which is unique because, you know, you don't necessarily need a, uh, you know, an experienced engineer or an experienced geologist once you have these assets, you know, you just need a team to, to be able to maintain them from the land side. That's true. So a lucky landman. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So a lot of landman in mental space. <laughs> so, what do you think is going to be the outcome of the new face of the oil company? Just lean, lean, lean. I mean, we're seeing layoffs across the board. We're seeing layoffs in reaction to what happened on Monday. So where, what is the next, you know, year, six months, Q2 of 2021 looking like in terms of the face of an oil company, a service company, um, just, you know, any fringe, <laughs> fringe tech companies, what, what's changing? Yeah. You know, I, I think it's going to be a really tough couple of years. I think it's going to be a much slower recovery than what we saw in the last downturn. Um, you know, I don't really think you're going to see, you know, there's not going to be a need for production increases until the end of 2021 or maybe even into 2022. Mm -hmm. uh, you're going to see a ton, a ton of bankruptcies. There's going to be, you know, there's been estimates of 40% to 50% of companies are going to default in the next 12 months. You know, you have $86 billion in debt coming up on maturity in the EMP space between 2020 and 2024. On the services side, you've got about $32 billion in debt um, coming up maturity, you know, 2020, 2024. But in reality, you know, a lot of that's going to come up before 2024, you know, because once these companies have to do, you know, barring-based redeterminations every quarter, they're going to have breached their covenants, you know, and they're going to, they're going to default. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, there's going to be a ton of, ton of carnage and, you know, there, it's going to be extended because even as prices begin to rebound and, and hopefully 2021, um, the hedge situation is mind blowing. Um, we've got about two and a half million barrels in the public AMP space hedged right now of daily production. And that falls off dramatically in January of 2021. I think it drops to like 400,000-ish barrels hedged right now. So and what's the result of that? What? What's the result of that then? Yeah. So, and it's, you'd be surprised at who's unhedged next year. I mean, you got the EOGs, you got the Chesapeake, you had the WPX, you had the Marathon, you have, you know, Oventive who, by the way, new name sounds like a birth control. It is a birth control. <laughs> you know, their heads just fall off. And so what you're going to see, what that causes is 
you know, they're going to be able to survive, you know, 2020 and be able to kick the ball down the road. But, you know, a lot of these fields aren't economic to produce, you know, assuming you know, next year, if you look at strips, going to be 32. Those fields are economic to produce, you know, at 32. And so you're going to see like a whole second win of, of bankruptcies start to happen as well in 2021. So you've been through bankruptcy. You've, you have a personal yeah. story with it. Can you give us a little insight there? Because, you know, people are beyond in crisis right now. Companies are in complete crisis. So from your personal perspective, how did you make yeah. it? <laughs> so, you know, bankruptcy is such a tough situation, you know, for every company. Um, you know, but my experience, I did go through a bankruptcy when I was working for a Balkan operator in 2015, 2016, 2017. You know, we filed in 2016 and, you know, I, it was from a, you know, work perspective, it was some of the most challenging nine months of my career. Um, you know, I was, I was thrown into a leadership position maybe before I felt like I was ready. Um, and I was given, you know, I had to, uh, to take on accountability for things that I wasn't even there and they happened, you know, all these erroneous claims get filed saying you've reached this farm out agreement that somebody did, you know, four or five years ago and you owe them, you know, $10 million, you know, and then the attorneys come to you and they say, you know, this is a claim that so-and-so just filed, you know, what do you have to say about it? You know, you need to write a, a memo and how you, you defend it. And the, it, it, you know, it's super challenging, but I wouldn't take back that experience for anything. I mean, I think that was a, a, um, a huge, had a huge impact on my career. It was a big, um, it was a pivotal point in my career, I think. And I, don't, I wouldn't be where I am today. And I don't think I would have, you know, my education would have accelerated like it did if I hadn't gone through that bankruptcy. And so, you know, my advice for anybody that's going through a bankruptcy or maybe, you know, going through a restructuring, you know, and try to avoid bankruptcy is that, you know, you've got to work hard. Just put your head down, work hard. It's hard, you know, it's very demoralizing, you know, and, and it, you go into the office every day and everyone's feeling deflated and everyone's scared, you know, are we going to, am I going to be next? But yeah. being that person that comes into the office and has a smile on your face and kind of lifts up the office atmosphere, um, you know, and work hard. If you love this industry, you know, downturns like this can present huge opportunities, you know, because once companies start to lean out, if you're really good at your job, that'll show. If you're not so good at your job, that'll also show as well. And so, you know, you could take advantage of opportunities in terms of career advancement or just, you know, education. You learn so much during bankruptcy. Again, that was that was a the pivot point for me. I remember, you know, when we started the, the stocking horse process, which is a process when um, you know, you start to get different potential buyers coming in and giving presentations. You know, and as a landman, I think we get so focused on our own world and we think that we are have more to do with the overall operation of the asset that we do. And I remember being in those meetings and, and realizing that the questions that the buyers had were more about, you know, meaning oil in place, um, you know, type curves, uh, you know, you know, what the break evens were at 20% RR. Um, they were all engineering and geology focused questions. And I was like, wow, I guess, you know, that's where a lot of the value is. It's not in the land. And so that kind of is what facilitated I think my passion for trying to understand and connect the dots mm -hmm. across the industry as a whole. Um, so that'd be, I guess that's, that's my take on, uh, on bankruptcy. That's, thanks for the insight. Um, I'm glad you actually had some personal experience in it. Cause the, the stress that is in industry right now is just, it's heartbreaking to a certain extent, but um, switching gears a little bit. One thing we're seeing come out of, I'm, I'm going to say the last four and a half months is what I'm calling the shut in movement, the call to shut in. 
And I am definitely one. I completely believe that that is the hand that the U.S. has to play because, unfortunately, we have proven time and time again through multiple oil wars that we do not control the tap. And in order to manage uh, the oil field as a whole and to reduce volatility, you have to control the global tap. And in many cases, that is the global conventional tap. So because Russia and Saudi Let's call it a pissing match, but I don't I don't know that the U.S. was uh, just collateral damage. I would definitely say that we were intentional uh, damage. Uh, they wanted to hurt the shell plays and they turned on the tap to do so. So this call to shut in, it's rational. But since we do not act as rational beings, what are your take on it? Because it's not that simple as just saying, go turn off a wellhead. There's mechanical issues with reservoir. There are contractual obligations through lease agreements. So what are you seeing? What What is your feeling on this shut-in, this call to shut-in? Yeah, I mean, the call to shut-in, everybody, I think, like going back to what I was saying earlier, I think everyone wants to be shutting in that can. Nobody wants to produce and pull oil out of the ground, you know, at $10 a barrel or $15 a barrel, or even $20 a barrel. We I mean, seen this morning. Yeah, and it's, I mean, even even if oil's at fifteen or twenty dollars, you know, a barrel, what's your differential at? You still might be in the red, you know. So wow. it's it changes obviously basin by basin what what operators may what price they may be willing to produce at. You know, but we've got to shut in production. You know, this last month, or I mean, last week, production only declined by about a hundred thousand barrels a day. You know, and storage increase or um, stockpiles increased by 50 million barrels a day. So clearly, we're not doing enough. You know, we need to be shutting in, you know, two million plus barrels a day eventually. Um, you know, and I think, you know, operators are trying. Again, there's certain things that are prohibit prohibitive. You know, again, whether that's you know MDCs or lease terms. And you know what the states need to do? They need to come in, like I said, OCC, and say you know, we believe that this is economic waste, you know, and therefore you've got, you know, reason to shut up these wells and hold your leases. And, you know, as a mineral owner, I don't want oil being pulled out of my minerals either at five, 10, 15, $20 barrel, especially if we think that it's gonna to go to $30 next year, I'd rather our operators shut them in. So we're actually sending operators letters, you know, the head of the state saying, you know, you can, you can shut in production on our wells for the next three months and we can potentially renew that with them to try to take off some pressure. Now, obviously, if you're just one owner in a DSU, you know, they're going to have to get other folks to do that. But we're hoping we can kind of be, you know, good influence on those. The other complication is that you have these federal plays like the Powder River Basin that we're in. Yeah. You know, and every DSU in the Powder River Basin, you know, get, so New Mexico is going to be experiencing some of the same problems. Then you've got, you know, areas of Balkan that are, uh, you know, federal as well, but, you know, you've got a patchwork of fee and fed. And so in any given DSU, you've got fed, you know, minerals, which means that you, that DSU is truly governed by the code of federal regulations. And unfortunately, you know, the, the feds have taken a tough stance on shut-ins and, you know, they've got strict 60 day COP clauses. And so, you know, that cessation of production clauses, so when you go to shut in a well, you know, if, if the if the field office is doing their job, they're going to catch that pretty quickly. And then okay. what they're going to do is send you a plug or produce letter. And operators in Wyoming have already started to get those, which makes it really tough. You know, and the, and the DOI has kind of taken a passive stance on this. Like, look, we're, we're just looking to the code for regulations. We don't think we need to come out with any specific instruction memorandum, you know, to <laughs> to to, you know, to fix the situation. Mm -hmm. you know, the DOI, you know, BLM, you know, I think they do need to look at it, you know, from the same way. And they're not going to be making, you know, money on their minerals with oil being pulled out of the ground at these prices either. No. You know, they're part of this industry. You know, they need to step in, I think, and they need to help take the pressure off of the operators as well. Um, going back to your question about, you know, potential problems of shutting in. Yeah. You know, I'm... I'm obviously not an engineer, you know, and I, th I think the problems of shutting in, uh, you know, are, are lessened in the conventional fields where you have, you know, high porosity, high permeability, you know, the reservoirs flow pretty consistently. 
um, when you get into the unconventional reservoirs, you know, and, and that, you know, that obviously tight rock, you know, we've got to frack it for a reason. Yeah, um, exactly. You know, the, the, you know, in the conventional reservoirs, your connectivity to the reservoir matrix, um, you know, can be a problem once you shut in those wells and once those fractures can, you know, stop talking. The other problem you get into, you know, is with, you know, the artificial lift and with ESP, yes. which is, you know, the electrical submersible pumps, which typically have, you know, an 18-ish month, um, you know, run life. And so, you know, you run into problems there as well. But you being a reservoir engineer, well, you hop in with, with some potential problems, you know, of uh, you can counter and shutting in walls, trying to bring them back online. You know, that's why I'm the host, right? I don't typically uh, get asked questions. So, you. <laughs> high level, I would say that it's a huge modeling issue. You're going to have wells that just are not possible to be shut in because of settlement issues. And there has to be a strategic method, to your point, about uh, considering fracture communication and the way in which, the pattern in which you shut in. So I don't know that modeling can do all of that successfully quickly i i commend these pop-up shops for trying to make a, a quick buck and figure out a way and you know come in as the technical team but it really takes someone who has not necessarily subsurface experience because remember as a reservoir engineer my job ends at sand face um, past that it is the production operations engineer so if you have a technical team coming in you want to make sure that the person making the decisions is an operational background with a very well-versed subsurface uh, background so that you can combine the two because the reality is is that when you shut some of these in the workover cost to bring them back online might not be worth it so shutting in an unconventionals into some conventional assets that we see up in the powder you know there's going to be some long-term I guess, damage that we have to prepare for. And what that's going to do is, again, go back to the contractual obligations that we're not going to be able to successfully just turn it back on and start fulfilling again. So back to you. Yeah, see? You can answer your own question. I'm, I never know to sound dangerous. How's that? Um, <laughs> so going back to the... Uh, the retaliation movement that we have in this oil war, it is to shut in. So potentially, let's say we get companies to shut in. What does that look like in the next, you know, six months, pulling back on, pulling offline, pulling back online what we can, what is that going to actually do to the market and to the current situation? Yeah, I don't, I don't know if it's so much a retaliation, you know, because shutting in production is good for everybody. Oh, you know, it, 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 you know it's, it's good for, you know, all the OPEC countries that, you know, it's good for us. Um, you know, I think about a third of the wells, the oil wells in the Balkan have already been shut in. And I think it's about like 260,000 barrels a day uh, that they've shut in so far. You know, other basins are starting to follow suit. Um, you know, I don't, I think that, you know, and again, this is a necessity. We, we need to cut production in order to bring back demand. Mm -hmm. um, you know, we're not going to level out oil prices until we bring that supply and demand back into equilibrium. And based on the existing stockpiles we have and the existing production, you know, outstripping demand by 30 uh, million barrels a day, you know, it's almost a billion barrels a month right now. You know, we've got a long way to go in, in drawing down the storage and the cutting production. I, you know, again, I don't think you're going to have to increase production again, you know, in uh, relation to demand until probably early 2022. So did you uh, did you happen to catch some of the latest Texas Railroad Commission's uh, meetings on production allowables and the potential of shutting in and what their take on it is to to help this situation? Yeah, I've I've read high level articles. I try to stay out of Texas and leave Texas to everybody else. <laughs> Just stay focused on the Rockies. I leave like Texas when I can. But I have seen that, and I just. You know, I don't think that they should be telling operators to shut in production. I think, you the know, allowables have happened in the past, though. When we had a glut in the 80s, there was a, a unified decision to allow production of certain assets versus others. So it's nothing yeah. new. Yeah, but 
it, it is new when you talk about what's happening with COVID, you know, and, yeah. and the demand destruction that's happened, you know, now, um, you know, it, it is completely different, you know, and I can't really speak to, you know, the eighties, I'm not super familiar with, you know, what was the reasoning behind the Texas Railroad Commission doing that at that time, but I do you know right the eighties, honey. <laughs> yeah. I just made 30 under 30. Well, actually, <laughs> 30. I was born in 90. So, um, but, you know, I, I do know that um, there is some worry about, you know, if this could get Texas in trouble, um, you know, in with, what way? Um, from, you know, some, some, probably there's some antitrust issues surrounding that, um, you know, that, that I'm not sure, you know, everybody in, you know, Texas wants to, um, I think there's some concern about, you know, the legal ramifications of that. Again, I can't really speak to those too much, um, you know, but I think, you know, the, the markets are going to take care of themselves and the operators are going to shut in production, um, you know, because because they have to, because they're bleeding cash, because there's no, you know, more storage capacity left. And I think they're going to need to be told to shut in production. So we have an interesting comment uh, from Trisha Fanning. The regulatory environment in Colorado does not consider oil or gas left in the ground as waste anymore because of the passing of SB 181. Trying to have an intellectual conversation uh, with our governor on the consumer economics is uh, remotely painful. So there you go, a little comment about some of more of the impacts of 181 and the test, the test case study that is Colorado. So that's why we moved to Wyoming. I know everyone should go to Wyoming. Y'all have signs saying "Welcome, oil and gas." The powder is yeah. the slow and steady player. I mean, God, underappreciated assets, man. Yeah. As we're wrapping up towards the end of this, I do have some questions for you about your thoughts on what this means for national security here. We, as Americans, and as our as our various administrations have done over the last uh, decade or two. We tout being the, the largest producer, we tout American oil independence, but I think what we have uh, seen is that we never win in these oil wars because we don't control the global conventional tap. So what do you see this impact of this display that, you know, they turned on the, the tap and within a month, we were on the the downside of the coin. So, what what is what do you think these long term ramifications are on a global perspective? Yeah, again, I think you know OPEC saying that they're going to increase production briefly that is not an insult to injury. That didn't get us into the position we are today. Um, you know, and you can flip what you just said onto its head, and and rather you know than saying we're kind of at the mercy of OPEC. You know, I think that we've kind of broken OPEC. OPEC doesn't have the power that they used to have over prices. You know, the, you the know US, no, the, the, you know, the, they try to cut production and then we just fill that production and they're not getting, they're not getting the results that they want to see through their, you know, through their production cuts because the US just continues to produce and fill that up. And so it's market share management. You reduce, I fill up. I mean, they just enabled the U.S. to continue to produce, you know, so I think that we've actually essentially, you know, broken OPEC from that standpoint. Um, the U.S. oil industry is kind of like a weed. I'm sure that's how they think about us. You know, we just won't go away. Nothing is going to make us go away. You know, we come back stronger, you know, every time. And, yeah. you know, if you look at, you know, you talk about, um, you know, kind of the strength of, of the U.S., you know, in the face of the other OPEC members. And, you know, we are far more resilient than any of those countries. You know, what what percentage of, you know, oil and gas uh, makes up, you know, the U.S. GDP versus what percentage, you know, the, of the GDP in Saudi Arabia does, is made up by oil and gas, you know, or in Russia is made up in oil and gas. Mm -hmm. You know, we're, we're far more resilient than those than those countries to, to swings in oil and gas prices and, and demand. So it's been kind of interesting. Um, we really haven't seen, we've seen the, the you know, the media channels on uh, markets really commenting on what's been happening over the last six months in the oil and gas space, in the energy space. Um, the administration has remained relatively quiet and only recently is there a hint of potential tariffs 
or stimulus packages for oil and gas companies. So why do you think they're just now tuning in? Is something more going on? Did we miss something? Are tariffs really a possible answer? Um, you know, I don't know. I, I thought that Trump was being pretty vocal about it. I mean, I heard that he brokered the OPEC deal. Um, <laughs> you know, I and, bet he had a hand in it. <laughs> uh, yeah. You know, so I, I, you know, I do think the U.S. has been pretty vocal about it. I think, you know, imposing, you know, tariffs on imports is probably a good idea. You know, obviously that production has already been priced in, you know, that production that Saudi Arabia is moving over here, you know, was, was priced in in that month that it was reported. You know, what isn't accounted for is obviously our storage, you know, our lack thereof. So where do we put that oil that was essentially produced in a, in a Brent market and put it in storage in a WTI market? Place. And the impact that that's going to have on price is not necessarily because of obviously the production, but because of the storage issue. And so, you know, the, those tankers are probably going to hang out, you know, floating, you know, off the coast until, you know, some sort of, you know, decision is made on what to do with that. And if Trump decides to, imp you know, impose some sort of tariff um, on those imports, you know, then, you know, are there, those tankers will maybe, you know, turn around and head to other markets. So that's the thing, though, and I, I agree with you. I, but again, I don't know if tariffs or even the threat of tariffs is really that impactful right now, because the reality is, is the rest of the world does not care where their oil comes from so long as their pipelines are filled. The U.S. first world, we tend to be more diligent about the uh, well, that, that might be arguable, too, but we tend to be more concerned socially about the the location the source of our imports so i mean tariffs really uh, even if they come into play do you think that that's they're just going to go somewhere else yeah i mean they they will go somewhere else and and i think this is kind of what you were saying but i think bottom line is price you know the companies the domestic companies that are buying you know saudi arabian oil it's all about price point you know, and and so, you know, if, if those tariffs take away that competitive price advantage that, that Saudi Arabia has, then you're not going to see, you know, domestic purchasers buying, you know, crude out of there. Um, and, and I think that's the intent, you know, of the administration discussing tariffs is to, is to level that that playing field mm -hmm. and and, you know, make, you know, OPEC crude, obviously, you know, less attractive. True. Just a quick note, uh, got corrected by Ms. Paige Wilson, the Texas Railroad Commission has not uh, cut oil production since the 1970s. It was not the 80s, but it did happen. So as we wrap up, Ms. Whitney Wicks, again, thank you so much for being here, but let's get some blunt and honest feedback out of you. The next couple of months are going to be hell. The next year is going to be hell. So yeah. Where should we be hedging our bets from individuals to companies to what should we keep our eye out for? What, where should we look for, you know, the, the hidden surprise? What, what is your advice to industry right now? Yeah. Um, yeah, I think it's going to be a long recovery. You know, this industry isn't for uh, fair weather fans. You know, if you're in it, you're in it. Um, you know, it's going to be a, yeah, a tough couple of years. And I think, you know, we need to take some lessons that now in hindsight, we've learned about the last downturn, you know, and as companies start to restructure, you know, go into default, you know, they need to delever and they need to stay delevered. You know, they shouldn't come out and, you know, add back on this debt. I think, um, you know, private equity, obviously also not jumping in as much is gonna help things, you know, but we also, you know, we need to invest in good management teams and we need to invest in good rock. You know, I think a lot of what happened coming out of last downturn is, is companies thought that they could make bad rock, good rock with technology. Which That's what fracking is, honey. Yeah, which proved, you know, which proved inefficient, you know? And, and if you look at, so, you know, the, the price point at which, you know, oil, and gas, oil needs to be at, you know, being kind of equilibrium with supply and demand, assuming that, you know, let's say just somewhere in the foreseeable future between 50 and $65 a barrel what percent of assets under management right now make money at those prices? It's not 100%. Uh, you know, so the company is going to have to consolidate. 
Um, and, you know, and you're, you're going to see a lot of that, I think, coming out of, um, you know, this next 12 months. There's a lot of consolidation. There's going to be, you know, some winners and, and there's going to be some, some losers. Um, but we need to be investing in good leadership at the top you know, good rock and kind of changing our strategy and looking at things from a more produce out mentality, you know, than looking at, you know, the potential exit strategy, exactly. of, you know, buying selling out. Strategy. because we've been really bad at trying to figure out what's low, you know, what's buying in low. Everyone thought that they're buying in low in the last downturn, which, you know, wasn't yep. true. So how do we all get one of those awesome hats you're rocking right now? So these are super limited edition. Um, <laughs> downturn or because of what's in stock? Because of my marketing budget. <laughs> Just kidding. Um, you know, if you want, so we've got we've got a couple colors of these hats. Um, so if you want one of these, just shoot me a message on LinkedIn, and I'll get yeah. you, I'll get you the Rock W hat. We're actually oh. going to do. A fundraiser for oil field helping hands. I would love to do that. And put hats on there. Not these hats, but different hats on there. I'm not going to give away the secret just yet because I don't want anybody to steal our idea. Um, but I'll let you know when that's that's live as well, and you can pass that on to all your uh, all your fans. That would be awesome. Well, Whitney, we are at the end. Thank you so much for joining. Because I know this was your very first podcast, and I know I completely tricked you into my very first live stream. So. Thank you so much for your acumen. I can't wait to catch back up with you in about, let's say, two months and see what your uh, market is. But again, awesome. So thank you so much. Thanks, Kat. And thanks, everybody who tuned in for this. I hope we didn't bore you and hopefully (laughs) said some enlightening things. I said some enlightening things. Um, Absolutely. If anybody, you know, wants any advice, too, that's going through a downturn, uh, I mean, not downturn, but through bankruptcy. You're all in a downturn, you know, man. Shoot, shoot me a message. You know, happy to talk to everybody about that. You know, if anybody wants to learn more about my experiences through that, happy to share them. Well, you have killer insight. So thank you so much. And we will catch back up with you soon. Talk to you later. Right. Thanks, Kat. Bye. Bye.